Uh, even though we, we finished Romans last week, uh, I, I, I couldn't say goodbye just yet. I wanted one more week. Uh, and so we are going to try to tackle, by the grace of God, the entire book uh, tonight, chapters 1 through 16. I'm not going to read it for you right now all in its entirety, uh, but I encourage you to do so at some point. Uh, really, I think that would be wonderful. Uh, but for the sake of time, obviously, we won't do that uh, tonight. But please open up to Romans 1, because uh, we will be making our way through. And we're going to be highlighting certain points from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16. So I would love if you would flip through with me uh, as we go through this uh, wonderful book. Allow me to pray uh, before we get started, because we get, we got a lot we got to get into. So I just want to jump right in. Uh, but we cannot do so uh, without asking the Lord for his help. So let, let me pray. Lord God, uh, we ask for your grace upon us right now in this hour. Lord, I pray that you would be with me, that you would strengthen me. Uh, God, I am your servant. And I pray that you would give me your words to say. Strengthen me in my weakness. And Lord, I pray that I would worship you uh, and glorify you. Lord, I ask that as we approach your word, I pray for all of us that your spirit would convict us, your spirit would change us. Lord God, that we would see our great need for you, that we would see how amazing your grace is. God, that we would behold your glory and seek to live for you because of it. We ask God for your grace in this time. In Christ's name, amen. But I do think that the book of Romans is one of the single greatest pieces of literature ever written. Uh, that's personally how, how I feel. Because uh, it's it, it so powerfully, it's so, it so delicately, it so beautifully outlines the most important truth and mystery of all ages. The gospel. And really it has been such a privilege uh, to have gone through this journey with you. Uh, the past couple of years, uh, and, and, and it is hard to say goodbye, uh, which is why I do want one more week here together. Uh, and so I, I, I want us to look at this book one last time, uh, but this time looking at it in its entirety. And what I want to do tonight is find and follow a common thread that is interwoven throughout the entire book. And that thread that we will follow tonight is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. In this book, we see everything kind of point back to that. Point back to the righteousness of God. And that's what I want us to follow tonight. So, buckle up. It's going to be quite the journey. Try to stick with me. Try to follow that thread. We're going to have a lot of points up here. We're going to blitz through it. Uh, it's, it. It's a big outline, all right? And so what I want us to do as we look at the righteousness of God, we're going to look at six different parts of the righteousness of God. We'll look at the theme of God's righteousness. We'll look at the need for God's righteousness. We will look at the imputation of God's righteousness. We will look at the sanctification of God's righteousness. We'll look at the vindication of God's righteousness. And then we'll look at the application of God's righteousness. All through chapters 1 through 16. All right. So there we go. Is everyone buckled up? All right. Let's begin. Then. Our very first point, the theme of God's righteousness. 
The theme of God's righteousness, and we see this in chapters 1, 16 through 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen to this, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And really, these two verses, 16 and 17, really can be seen as the topic sentence of this whole book of Romans. It's, it's really the theme of the book. And for the purposes of tonight, I want us to look at, in these two verses, two aspects of God's involvement in our salvation. In these two verses, two aspects of God's involvement in our salvation. It's going to kind of set up the rest of the book. So first, we see the power of God in salvation. All right. What we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look at, as I said, six main points. And with each main point, we'll get two subpoints. Okay? So we're in the theme of God's righteousness. First, the power of God in salvation. If it were not for the power of God in salvation, then not a single soul in the history of this earth would have hope to be saved. Thank God for his power in salvation. It is his power that changes a wretched man into a redeemed man. It is his power that raises the dead to life. And it is only his power that can do that. It is change that we all need. And it is change that we cannot do on our own. We do not have the power to save. Only God has that power. If you are not a Christian, if you are not a Christian, know that you do need to be saved. We're going to talk more about that soon. You do need to be saved. But that power to save does not come from within. That, need, that power to save does not come from yourself. You cannot do enough good Christian biblical things to change your position with God. You cannot know enough biblical things to change your position with God. You cannot believe in enough things of the Bible to change your position with God. This power is not in you. But thanks be to God, this power is in Him. If you are not a Christian, do not rely on your own power to save yourself. But you must rely solely on God. And if you are a Christian, you must still remember that it is his power to save. Still remember that. Remember that even still in your own sanctification, your own progressive sanctification. Remember that, Christian. Sometimes Christians feel like that, yeah, I need God in my justification, uh, but not in my sanctification. That, yes, of course, I need God's power to save me, to justify me. But then now that I'm a Christian, now it's my power in order to grow in him. It's my power now into be a good Christian. No, it is still his power. Always. It is not in your power, Christian, to grow in your walk. But it's his. We rely on him. And Christian, remember not only that in your own self, but remember that even as you evangelize to the lost, it is his power to save, not yours. That as you share salvation with your beloved ones, remember it is his power. 
Yes, you have an obligation to share his gospel. Yes, even Paul, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. And it's our obligation to share that gospel. But while it is your responsibility, it is his power. So Christian, when you are evangelizing to the lost, do not grow frustrated. Do not grow discouraged. You're talking to a dead corpse. It can't respond unless a miracle from God acts in their life and he gives them new life. He alone has the power to save. Not only do we see the power of God in salvation, but we also see the righteousness of God in salvation. The righteousness of God in salvation. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Right? We said that we don't have the power within yourself to save yourself. And the reason for this, the reason you don't have the power in yourself, is because you have no righteousness of your own. If you had righteousness of your own, then you wouldn't need saving. Because you'd already be righteous. But you have no righteousness of your own. Which is why you need the power of God to save you. And how does God in his power save someone? By his righteousness. His righteousness, specifically the righteousness of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that there is hope in Jesus Christ because there is righteousness in Christ. And this is why it is so important that Christ lived here on earth because he lived a perfect life. He lived the perfect life that we needed to live, but have all failed to live. He truly is righteous. And Christ has imputed his righteousness unto every believer. We're going to get in more into that soon. And if you are in Christ, his righteousness completely covers you. His perfect life is credited to your account. So when you are in the courtroom of God, you are now treated as if you are righteous, as if you have lived a perfect life because of Christ's accomplishment on your behalf. Have you placed your faith? Have you placed your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness on your behalf? Or do you seek to provide your own righteousness? On your own behalf. In the gospel. He is your righteousness. And your faith is in him. To impute his righteousness. On your account. Is your faith in him? Is your faith in. Christ. Or is your faith. In your own righteousness. Are you. Seeking to be righteous. Are you. Seeking. To, to do more Christian things so that God is satisfied with your life. Do not rely on your righteousness, but go to the gospel and see the righteousness only comes from Christ. So that's the theme that we see through this entire book, the theme of God's righteousness. But then he quickly gets to the point, and we see the need for God's righteousness. And this is found in chapter 118 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. The need for God's righteousness. Our first sub-point, the consequences of our unrighteousness. The consequences of our unrighteousness. We'll pick right up where we left off. Chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what he says. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because of our sin against God, we, every single one of us, because of our sin against God, we deserve the wrath of God for all of eternity in the lake of fire. Now when we think of wrath, maybe we often think of it from a human perspective. Maybe we think of wrath from a human level. Human wrath often is, 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 a, is a loss of self-control. Human wrath is often it's an outburst of irrational emotion. And more times than not, it's tainted with sin. That is not God's wrath. God's wrath is perfect. It is always completely righteous. He never loses his temper or, or becomes out of control. It is not irrational, but it is a holy response to evil. God's wrath is perfectly just, administering the perfect amount of wrath to each as they justly deserve. Not more, not less. It is controlled. It is righteous. It is just. And if you are not a Christian, you must know that the wrath of God is real. And the wrath of God is is upon you. And that's not meant to be just some scare tactic to, to, to force you to, to join a social club. It is a reality. It is a reality that I beg you to realize. If you are not a Christian, you have the wrath of God hanging over your head. And I beg you to turn from your rebellion of God and trust in Jesus Christ. I beg you to see the wrath of God. And not only that, but to see the love of God. That the same God with a wrathful hand is the same God with a loving, gracious hand. And it's not in you to save yourself from his wrath. But it is in God. And if you are not a Christian, ask that God would give you the faith to believe. And he would give you a repentant heart that submits to him. The need for God's righteousness. We see the consequences of our unrighteousness. And then we see the absence of our own righteousness. We see the absence of our own righteousness. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Let me read chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. He says, as it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. As he's talking about the wrath of God that we deserve, as he's talking about these are the consequences of our unrighteousness, he then goes on to say, and guess what? We have no righteousness. We are unrighteous. And so Paul lists three aspects of the nature of man that show man's total depravity and their need for Christ's righteousness. First he says, none is righteous. None. There is none righteous, he says. Not even the diligent and committed and, and good-working churchgoer. Maybe like much of you. He says none is righteous. See, the problem is that we think the, the goodness that we do and, and any righteousness that we have is counted as righteousness according to God's standard and God's scale. 
We assume that by uh, accumulating enough of these, these good things that we call good, that we will be counted as righteousness and we'll be able to please God. But our righteousness, tainted with sin, is not in the same league as God's. You know, it'd be like if, if we are, uh, if you're like this super Monopoly guy. Like, you're so good at Monopoly, and you play in, like, all these Monopoly leagues, and, like, you're playing Monopoly, you're winning all this cash. Yeah, and it's take home. You know, you take home the Monopoly money, you know, the, the little fake paper money. You take that home, and you go and play more Monopoly games, and you take that home, and you've just collected, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars of Monopoly money. And you're like, oh, I'm so rich. Yeah, and then and you're like, I'm going to go buy a car. You go to the dealership, you want a nice, fancy car. I'm like, oh, okay, that's going to be $100,000. You're like, no problem. Have you seen my stash? And you take out your Monopoly money and you try to pay for it. And what? They'd be like, get out of here. Like, obviously, you can't use Monopoly money here, right? But what? In your mind, you're saying, in Monopoly? Yeah, it's, it's great. Of course it works. But in real life, that's not real money. In the same way, the righteousness that we present to God is like that of Monopoly money. It doesn't work. It's not real currency in the courtroom of God. Maybe in this life, oh yeah, we've accumulated all this righteousness. We go before the courtroom of God and we say, here, look at all my righteousness. He says, this is, this is play money. This isn't real righteousness. God requires divine, pure, worshipful righteousness. And in our sinful hearts, when we do good works, it is not divine. It is not pure. It is not worship. None is righteous. And then he says, no one understands. Paul says that no one understands. And what he's referring to understanding is the truth of the gospel, of God in the gospel. And it's not that the doctrine of the gospel is just so difficult to understand, but rather is that man in his wicked nature suppresses the truth. It goes back to Romans 1.18. That in our sin nature, we suppress the truth of God and we become futile in our thinking. So the non-Christian, without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, cannot understand the truth of God and his gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person, right, the person without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot truly, in our hearts, understand the truths of the gospel. And thirdly, he says, no one seeks for God. No one's righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In our sin nature, we will never seek God on our own. We will instead choose sin and rebellion. I believe we are given the freedom to choose. But by our nature, we will never choose God. It is like that of a a tiger. Imagine taking a tiger and starving him for a week. No food. He's locked up in the cage. Nothing. You don't feed him. And then you lay in front of him a big bowl of juicy steaks. And then you give him next to it a big bowl of salad. And you release that tiger who's been starved. And and you give him the freedom. Choose what you're going to eat. Every single time, that tiger will go for the juicy steak. You can't say, oh, you didn't give him the choice. 
Now you gave him the choice. He could have had the steak or the salad. But every time he would choose the steak. Why? Because it is in his nature to choose that meat. And so it is in our nature always to choose sin over God. We do not naturally seek after God. No one does. The only way our nature changes is if the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. And we are born again. And unless that divine miracle from God happens to us, we in our sinful nature will not seek after God. We have no righteousness of our own. Then how can we be seen as righteous before God? How can we? Through the gracious gift and the imputation of his own righteousness. Which is where he goes next. We're following the thread. Right? We see the need of God's righteousness, but now we see the imputation of God's righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to chapter 5, 21. The imputation of God's righteousness. First, we see complete salvation by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Complete salvation by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul had just said, there is none righteous. And yet people still continue. Even though he said, no one's righteous, no one understands, no one sees God. And yet people still continue their attempt of gaining their own righteousness through the law. Paul said the righteousness of God is apart from the law. Look at 3.21. He says, but now the righteousness of God, there it is again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What Paul is doing here is he is addressing legalism. Man's attempt to be made acceptable by their own human efforts. And in its most common form, legalism is seeking to be justified by your own works. Like we said earlier, seeking to be made right before God based on what you do. Based on, on your own self, your own accomplishments. And saying, because I've done this, therefore God will accept me. We must know that legalism is a false gospel and is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is futile. Because you cannot in any way be made acceptable to God based on your own efforts. And instead he says, the righteousness of God is through faith. In Jesus Christ. The next verse, 322. Righteousness of God. There it is again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see that? It is faith in Christ that saves us. A wholehearted belief betting 100% on Jesus. That's it. No backup plan. No alternative. Not Jesus and this and that. Just him. It's either Jesus or I die. That's it. Not, yeah, I'll believe in Jesus and let me believe in some of these other things. So if these other things don't work out, at least I still have Jesus in my boat. No, it's Jesus only. That's it. You're made fully in him. And this faith that you have in him is your faith. Your faith. Your personal faith. Not your parents' faith. Not your friend's faith. Not your sibling's faith. Your faith. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you? 
Do you have faith in who he is and what he has accomplished on your behalf? Now, Paul shows us three things that Jesus accomplished on our behalf and which causes the imputation of the righteousness of God to our account. He says justification, redemption, and propitiation. If you're following along, I'll read chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There it is again. Let's look at those three words, justification, redemption, propitiation. Justification, to be justified is to be declared right. Justification is God's declaration that all demands of the law have been fulfilled and properly met. What? How on earth can we be declared that all the demands of the law have been properly met? That's absurd. No way. Not us. Not a chance. We are not righteous, remember? But this is not done by you. It is done for you. On your behalf. All through the righteousness of Christ. This is a legal transaction that officially changes your standing before God. You were guilty. But now something is different. Something has changed. You are now made right before God. You've been justified. And then you've been redeemed. To be redeemed is to be purchased. Like that of being set free from slavery. Our freedom from the bondage of our sin needs to be purchased. We cannot free ourselves. We cannot escape from this bondage. We actually need someone to purchase our freedom for us. We need to be redeemed. And this is exactly what Christ has done for you. He purchased our freedom with his blood. We have redemption in Christ because he paid our ransom through his own life and his own death on the cross. He redeemed us, Christian. And then Christ became the propitiation for us. Propitiation. That, that's like appeasement or, or, or satisfaction. I've explained it in this way, maybe. Like, like that of a sponge that soaks it up and, and fully satisfies. It's like if, if, if there was like this sandcastle, let's say. And this, you pour this bucket of water that's going to just come in and destroy it. And there's this giant sponge that you place in the way in the middle. And it, it doesn't just divert the water. No, it soaks up all the water. It takes it. So the sandcastle doesn't. And it's fully satisfied, that water is. It's appeased. As it soaked it up itself. The sponge soaked it up itself. And the ransoming propitiation was paid by Christ's own blood. It is because of the life and the death of Christ that God's wrath and justice is satisfied. It is his perfect life that satisfies God. If Jesus did not live a perfect life, he could not be the ultimate sacrifice for us. It's perfection that is required and it's perfection that we cannot achieve. But being perfect, he can truly be our substitute. His righteous life can truly be credited to our account. And so God is fully satisfied and appeased through the sacrifice of his son. Christ paid it all in full. There's nothing left 
for the believer to pay. Nothing. Not that Jesus paid 99% and we paid 1%. No, he paid 100%. All of it. And because of this, because of what Christ has done on our behalf, because of the justification and the redemption and the propitiation, because of this, we now have peace with God. We now have peace with God, which is our next blank point. In the imputation of God's righteousness, we have peace with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Peace with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Picks it right up in chapter 5, verse 1. What does he say? Therefore, as we're just talking about, since we've been justified by faith, as he was saying, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see this threat that he is going for us, right? All of a sudden, now, he's saying, now we have peace with God. I believe this is arguably the biggest change that can happen to any individual. Peace with God. Understand that? Because by nature, we are enemies with God. We have hostility with God. But now... Christian, we are at peace with God. And the only way we can have peace with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ and His righteousness that is imputed onto our lives. We do not have this peace because we've earned it. We do not have this peace because we made ourselves look appealing to God. Because we're the cream of the crop. That's not how or why we have peace. No, in fact, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 says that it is while we were weak, ungodly, Sinners, enemies of God, that he loved us, that Christ died for us. We do not bring anything to the table that would make us attractive. But it is in our sin, it is in our rebellion towards God that God loved us, that Christ died for us. In Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of our sins, which brings about peace with God. And it is in Christ, and only in Christ, that we can be forgiven. There is no forgiveness of sin by keeping the law. There's no forgiveness of sin in balancing the scales and saying, well, I've sinned this much, so let me do this amount of righteousness. There's no forgiveness in sin in your church attendance or in your godly wisdom or in your family tradition or heritage. Oh, we're a Christian family, and so I'm a Christian. No, there's no forgiveness in any of that. There's no forgiveness in anything outside of Jesus Christ. It is in him alone that we can be forgiven of our sins. And so we must be found in Christ. He goes on at the end of chapter 5 talking about Adam and Christ, who is the new Adam. And in our nature, we are found in Adam, which brings death and condemnation. But by the grace of God, we can be found in Christ, the new Adam, which brings about forgiveness and peace with God. Listen to chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, talking about Adam's, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Do you see that? As Jesus, as a new Adam. How can we have peace with God? Through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ that leads to justification and life for all men. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ. So we've seen, first, the theme of God's righteousness. Then we've seen the need for God's righteousness. Then the imputation of God's righteousness. But he goes on and then we see the sanctification of God's righteousness. Which is verse 6 through 8. The sanctification of God's righteousness. While the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. And while God treats us. Treats us. As innocent and no longer guilty, he is still sanctifying us as we continue to fight the residing sin within. We're not sinless yet. The sanctification of God's righteousness, chapter 6 through 8. First we see that the Christian has victory over sin and yet still struggles with sin. The Christian has victory over sin. And yet still struggles with sin. Both are true. Paul tells us that we do indeed have victory over sin through the union we have in Christ. Now being found in Christ. Now being found in the new Adam. Follow the thread. We have victory over sin through that union with him. Look at 6, 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Sin no longer has effective power or control over us, Christian. Our slavery to sin has been broken by Christ. We are no longer under the tyranny and the rule of sin. We do not need to obey sin. The submission and slavery to sin, that characterizes the old self. But those in Christ have died to the old self. That's gone. It's put away with. So Christian, don't go back. Don't go back acting like you are still a slave to sin. Don't go back to your old self. That is characterized by your submission to sin. Don't go to that. You're no longer a slave to sin. Christ has victory over that sin. And if you are in Christ, then you too have victory over that sin. But, I still go into chapter 7. But, even though the power of sin no longer has a grip and control over us, we are still in our earthly fleshly bodies and we still struggle with sin. Do we not? Even Paul felt the struggle. Chapter 7, 18 through 20. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You hear that? You feel that? This is the inward battle every Christian faces. Paul is a new creation. He has new desires to stop sinning and to live for God instead. Yes, but sin still resides in the flesh. And 
because of that, he cannot do what he wants to do. Not on his own. He's not saying he's completely incapable of doing any good and living for, for Christ. No, he's saying he's saying that he is weak on his own. That he has this, the desire to do what is right, but he doesn't have the ability to carry it out. Do you see the frustration? Do you, do you have that frustration? Do you feel that frustration? I don't want to sin, but why do I keep sinning? I want to obey God, but why do I not? That's a good frustration. That's a good thing. As the Christian matures, as he grows in his understanding of God's holiness and his goodness, and he is sanctified, he then becomes more deeply grieved by his own sinfulness. How can we not? How can we not behold the glory of Christ and not be moved to put away our sin and to worship him? The more of a clear picture you have of who God is, the more of a clear picture you have of your own sinfulness. So you hate it and you begin to hate the sin within because God and sin are completely opposed to one another. And as you love God, how can you love sin? As your love for God grows, your hatred for sin grows. Do you grieve over your sin? Do you grieve over it? Paul's grieving here. Or is your sin not a big deal? Because for the most part, you live a pretty good life. That's all right. Of course you're going to have some sin. You just brush it off? Are you apathetic towards your sin? Yeah, it's, you know, it's there. I'm trying. But, you know, I slipped up. Let it never be! But instead, have a real hatred and a grievance towards your own sin. And you want nothing more to do with it. Let your prayer be, God, if there is any sin in me, which there is. Purge it out of me. Get it out of here. I don't want it anymore. There ought to be a stronger sensitivity towards your own sin. Sometimes we're more sensitive to other people's sin. Oh, I can't believe he's like that. Then we have our own sin. Do you hate your sin, Christian? Struggle with it. Christian, while there is victory over sin, there is still struggle. There is still a struggle. Next, in our sanctification, we see the Christian still struggles with sin, yes. And yet he is forever secure in the love of God. The Christian still struggles with sin. As we see in chapter 7. But then 8. Oh, we love chapter 8. And yet it's forever secured in the love of God. Even though you struggle, Christian, know that you are forever secured in the love of God. How can we know this is true? Well, one, because there is no condemnation for you, Christian. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. After he's saying, he's a oh, wretched man that I am. Right? He hates to sin within. Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? The condemnation that you rightfully deserve, like we've talked about at the beginning, right? That condemnation that you deserve because all the sins that you did, that you commit, that you continue to commit. That condemnation you deserve, Christian, is gone. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. 
the condemnation in which you earned is gone forever, for good. That means that you don't currently have condemnation on your account, and it means you never will. Never. It's impossible. If you are truly in Christ, you will never be condemned. You are completely free in Christ and will always, forever, eternally remain free. Christian, no matter how much you feel that struggle with sin, no matter how much you live in chapter 7, know with confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is now, that is tomorrow, and that is forever. All of your sins, all of your failures, every penalty you owe has been paid for by the blood of Christ and has been forgiven by the grace and the mercy of God. The Christian will never receive the eternal death penalty for their sins. You deserve it, Christian. You earned it, Christian. But you will never receive it. Ever. Because Christ took in full the penalty that you earned so that you may be set free. So that you would not be condemned. But secondly, how can we know it's true that we'll be forever secured? Because he says that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Look at 8, 38 and 39. He says, for I am sure, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation. What? We'll be, able, we'll be able to separate us, and this is key, from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you say with Paul, I am convinced nothing can separate me from the love of God. I think these are some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture. In all of Scripture. And not just because of the assurance that nothing can separate us. But it's because of the object of this promise, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing greater than the love of God. Nothing, not even close. There is nothing even remotely close in the same league as the love of God. And it is this, the love of God, that is promised to us. That will never be taken from us. We may lose money. We may lose reputation, popularity, friends, good looks, our homes, our freedom, our family members, our friends. We may lose all of this. We may sin greatly. But if you are truly in Christ, we will never lose the love of God. Never. Be assured, Christian, you are forever secure in the love of God. So after he talks about that, the sanctification of God's righteousness, he then goes into the vindication of God's righteousness. Chapters 9 through 11. The vindication of God's righteousness. That after coming off of such a strong statement and saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like, that's a pretty big statement. 
Paul is anticipating the question, well, can we really trust that? Can we trust God? And the reason for this question, it probably stems from them asking, what about God's chosen people? What about them? Did God break his promises to Israel? Did he make promises to them and he broke them? And now you're telling me he's promising that he'll, that he'll never separate us from the love of God? Well, can we trust that? Did God break his promise to Israel? And Paul gives an emphatic, no. I love his emphatic no's. <laughs> and here in these three chapters, 19, 11, yep, three chapters, he vindicates, he proves God's righteousness and his faithfulness to always keep his promises. How so? Well, first, we see that God has proven that he alone is the author of salvation. God has proven that he alone is the author of salvation. This is chapters 9, verses 6 through 24. Obviously, a lot to go in that passage, which we won't read tonight. But in that passage, 9, 6 through 24, Paul talks about God being completely sovereign over salvation. And in his sovereignty, he proves his righteousness. Then these verses, Paul shows that God is the one who elects his people. That God is the one who chooses whom he will save. That God shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. I at least need to read verse 16. 9.16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but what? On God who has mercy. It's not our choice to initiate our pursuit of God, but it is God who initiates his pursuit of us. It is God's will, not ours. It is God who elects. It is God who makes the first move. He calls us to himself. He pursues us. It begins by God's sovereign and gracious will. He is the giver of salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. And he gives it as he wills. Now some are uncomfortable with that. Some naturally ask the question, Shouldn't God then show mercy and give salvation to everyone? Why would there be people in hell? Shouldn't God show mercy and give salvation to everyone? We need to be careful with our questioning. Notice the word shouldn't. Shouldn't God show mercy and give salvation to everyone? Shouldn't means he ought to. Shouldn't he? Shouldn't God show mercy? That he ought to, that he must, that it's necessary. It implies this obligation. Shouldn't he do this? If we're talking about should, the only should in the equation is justice. It's no longer mercy. God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. But indeed, God is rich in mercy. Not because he ought to, but because he is. The real mystery is not, why doesn't God show mercy and salvation to everyone? That's not the mystery. The real mystery is that God has shown mercy to you, if you are in Christ. That he has shown mercy to me, to any Christian. The mercy of God is undeserved and unrequired, and yet he has done so. You see, God gives salvation. He gives it, and he gives it not because he ought to. And not because we deserve it. He gives it because he is merciful. And in his mercy and in his sovereignty over salvation, even in his justice, we see the righteousness of God. He is right. Not only do we see 
that God has proven he alone is the author of salvation, but also God has proven that he always keeps his promises. God has proven that he always keeps his promises. The question still remains. Well, what about Israel? Did God break his promises to Israel? It seems as if God has abandoned his people, the Israelites, and have now chosen just to love the Gentiles instead. What's up with that? And this is Paul. He argues this in chapters 9 through 11, showing this is not the case. For one, while there was a partial hardening for the Jews, there's still a remnant of Jews who do belong to the family of God. In fact, guess what? Paul is one of them. Chapter 11, verse 1, 1 into 2. I ask then, has God rejected his people, the Israelites? By no means. Another emphatic no. Yes. He says what? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He says, look, dude, I am an Israelite. Like, this is me. And look, I'm saved. So no. He's saying, I am one of them. I'm one of the remnant. Paul uses himself as an example, stating that the fact that he's saved proves that God has not completely and utterly rejected Israel, God's chosen people. No, because even if one, even if one Jewish person has been saved, then no one can make that claim. Indeed, Paul is an example of at least one. And he goes on in verse 5 to say, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Indeed, God has not broken his promise to Israel. He's still working in the hearts of his people. There's a remnant of Israelites who are indeed saved. And then secondly, part of God's plan of salvation is to graft the Gentiles into the family of God and the Jews back in. It's always been the plan of God to graft the Gentiles into his family. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not through your family. It's not through your heritage. It's not through being part of this bloodline. No, salvation is and always has been through faith. And by faith, the Gentiles were grafted in. And then thirdly, God has a plan of revival for the Israelite people. While the Jews were cut off from the branch, it says in 11.23, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again, the Jews. And he goes on to say in 25 and 26, that once the Gentiles have come in, then all of Israel will be saved. What he's saying is that there will be some kind of a revival, some kind of a turning of ethnic Jews in which God will open their eyes and they will accept Jesus as the Messiah and they will be saved. So you see, God is not forsaken or broken his promises to Israel. God always keeps his promises. God is good. God is righteous. God's promises are unbreakable. His promises are unchanging. His promises are always true yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he has proven that time and time again. So you see the vindication. He proves his righteousness. But doesn't Paul doesn't stop there. And I'm glad he didn't. Because where does he go? He then goes to the application of God's righteousness. Chapters 12 through 16. First, we see the Christian's response to this incredible gospel is to offer their life as a living sacrifice to God. The Christian's response to this incredible gospel is to offer their life as a living sacrifice to God. Paul gives us a big therefore in chapter 12. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. That as a result of the gospel, as a result of this incredible plan of salvation that he spent 11 chapters on, therefore, he says, live like this. And to live like this, he starts off by saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. We have to understand that this living for God is a result of the therefore. We must understand that. It's a result of salvation comes before Christian living. Always. Please do not get that backwards. Let me say it again. Maybe write it down. Salvation comes before Christian living. Christian living does not come before salvation. It cannot. If you in some way believe that you can live a a Christian lifestyle, that you can live like a Christian, and then you can become a Christian because of it, then you have not understood the gospel. And you are fatally deceived. Salvation first. Then Christian living. We can't forget Christian living. It then must come. And the way in which we present our lives to God is a living sacrifice. We are to live for him. Even in ways in which require us to sacrifice. We are to give our entire lives to God. Not just our leftovers. We are to give God our first fruits. Do you give God your first? Do you give God your best? Do you give God your priorities? Or does God get whatever extra time, whatever extra effort, whatever extra energy you might have at the end of the day? Does God have your first fruits? Are you presenting your life as a living sacrifice to God? Until the Lord calls you to death, you are called to life. And you are called to live. And you are called to live as a sacrifice to him. And this living sacrifice is worship. It's worship. Worship's not done exclusively in a sanctuary. Worship to God ought to be our entire lives. And obedience to God ought not just be obligation or duty, but obedience to God ought to be worship. And so all that we do ought to be done in worship to God. Your whole life, every aspect is a sacrifice to God that is worship to Him. Are you worshiping God with your life? In all categories of your life? Do you worship Him? If you can identify an area in your life in which you know does not bring glory to God, I challenge you to consider no longer having that part of your life. Why would you? Why fill your time and spend your life on something that is not worship, that does not bring glory to God? Why waste your time with that? Christian, our life is a sacrificial life. That is spiritual worship. What is your response to the gospel? Remember, this is the therefore. Therefore, in light of everything we had just said, may it be 
the worship of God by living a sacrificial life to God. And lastly, sadly, I have to say lastly, maybe I'll try to do Romans 16 through 1. Try to do the thread backwards next week. Nothing about it. Just kidding. Lastly, the Christian's response to this incredible gospel. It is incredible. It's to serve God in the unity of the body of Christ. There's a lot more we could have said here in this section, chapters 12 through 16. This is what I want to focus on tonight. What is the response? It is to serve God in the unity of the body of Christ. From chapters 12 through 16, I mean, Paul presents many ways in which the Christian is to live for the Lord. Yes, but I think one of the most reoccurring themes that we see here is living together in the unity of the body of Christ. So I just want to look at Two aspects of that tonight. First is this, that every Christian is given specific gifts to serve the body in their own unique way. Chapter 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And he goes on to talk about that. Paul uses the analogy of a human body, where, where there are many different parts of the body, all with its own unique purpose and, and strength. In the same way, God has created diversity within the body of Christ. There are many members, and these many members have different functions. And not only that, but he goes on to say that every believer in Christ has a spiritual gift. From the youngest to the oldest, from the newest to the most mature. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling inside them. Chapter 8, which we didn't get to tonight. And God has blessed them with the spiritual gifts or spiritual gifts. And so every believer ought to use the gift in which God has graciously given to them for the furtherance of his kingdom, for the edification of the body, and for the glory of God. Are you in Christ? If so, are you using your spiritual gifts for the furtherance of his kingdom, for the edification of the body, and for the glory of God? If you are a Christian, you are a member. You are part of the body of Christ. And every part of the body has a created and intentional purpose and function. And if you are not functioning as you should, then the rest of the body will suffer because of it. Use the gifts in which God has given you. And secondly, what I want to look at here is that we must be diligent and persevering in serving the Lord. And we kind of see this at the end of chapter 15 through 16. Being diligent, persevering, serving the Lord. That as Paul closes out his letter, we see his plan. Remember this we looked at a couple weeks ago. We see his plan to continue serving with, with no indication of stopping. He plans to, to make a pit stop at Jerusalem, visit Rome, spend some time in Spain. All of which is for the purpose of spreading the gospel and his word. He will not stop. He can't stop this man. But he's going to continue serving the Lord. Christian, we too must be diligent and persevere in our plans to serve the Lord. As long as we are alive, we know that our mission, specifically ourselves, our mission is not done. Because we're alive. And if our mission is not done, may we never be found wasting each and every day that God has given to us. He has given you breath today. He has given you another day to live 
Today. He's given you today to live. Will you waste it? Will you waste today, the day he's given you to live for his purpose? If he gives you tomorrow, will you waste it? I asked this question two weeks ago. Have you wasted the last two weeks? He's given you two more weeks since last time I asked this question. Have you used those two weeks to fulfill his mission, his purpose, for for the furtherance of his kingdom, to glorify him? Have you used those two weeks or have you wasted it? Will you be a good steward with the mission that God has given you? Will you make the most of the life that God continues to give you each and every day? Will you live for him? Will you live for him today? Will you live for him tomorrow? And every new day that he gives you, will you live for him? Or will you waste it away? The mission still remains. Will you be faithful to your call? Paul loved the body of Christ, and so he served the body of Christ. Will you, in love for God's people and in love for God himself, will you serve the Lord with your entire life? Well, it is time that we put this magnificent book to rest. And I hope you were able to enjoy this journey as much as I did, because I enjoyed it. As we close our time of following this thread of the righteousness of God, I want to end by challenging everyone in this room in some way. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are not saved, know that you need the righteousness of God and you cannot obtain it on your own. But praise be to God that he has given us his son and that in him we can have the righteousness of God. And I pray that God would open your eyes, that he would give you faith to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and that he would give you a heart of repentance and worship to him. If you are a Christian, I hope you can see God's righteousness for his entire plan of salvation. And as a result of his saving work in you, Christian, That now you have a burning desire to live your life and worship to him in all things. Will you serve him with your life? Will you glorify him in all you say and do? Have you seen that he is worthy? Have you seen the righteousness of God? Go and live for him. Proclaim his gospel truth. Serve the body. And as Paul closes out his letter, may God be glorified forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, may you be glorified. God, we thank you for your righteousness. God, you are so worthy of our worship and praise. And Lord, I pray that we would indeed respond to your gospel truth by worshiping you. Lord, for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have not repented of their sins, God, I pray by your grace that you would grant that to them. That you would open their eyes to see their need for you. That you would save them. God, show mercy. Save the lost. Lord, for those in here whom you have called, God, I pray that we would indeed 
respond to your gospel by serving others, by serving you, all for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless the time that we have together as we discuss these things. May you be glorified in Christ's name.